This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Welcome to Aquarimania. I'm your host, Dr. Roy Anong, speaking to you from the University of Florida's Tropical Aquaculture Laboratory. Thanks for joining us. Most hobbyists are familiar with the common pleco, the catfish that feeds on algae and detritus and is a staple of any community tank. But most do not know that there are currently hundreds of species of catfishes in the pleco family, the Loricariidae, many with incredible color and patterns like the zebra pleco or the gold dust pleco, and many of which have not yet been properly identified by scientists. My guest today is Hans George Evers, longtime aquarium hobbyist, lecturer, author, and editor-in-chief of Amazonas Magazine. Join us as we learn more about Hans, Amazonas, and the amazing Elcats. We'll be right back after these messages. It's designerpetsweaters.com. Hand-knitted designer sweaters for your precious pup or cool cat. Beautiful couture patterns for your pets, including custom-knitted formal wear, casual wear, yachting, and even sports-themed. Many designer pet sweaters include feathered tammy hats, top hats, and a lot of sparkle. Each sweater includes leg loops, front paw sleeves, and leash opening. Visit designerpetsweaters.com to order your four-legged fashions today. Your pets will stay warm for the winter and be runway ready. Large or small, we fit them all. Designerpetsweaters.com Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back to Aquarium Mania on Pet Life Radio. My guest today is Hans George Evers, editor of Amazonas Magazine. Hi, Hans. Thanks again for your time. Hi, Roy. So, you are one of our first international guests. Can you tell us where you are from originally and where you are right now? Well, I'm a German, a German aquarist, and I'm actually sitting in my office here, uh, my Amazonas uh, editing office, and I'm now um, talking to you. It's bad weather in Germany. It's afternoon. <laughs> what can I say? You want to fly down here? It's a little warmer, and it's pretty sunny. If you, if you have. To. <laughs> I wish I could. I, I actually will be in two weeks' time. I will uh, join the NEC convention in Hartford, Connecticut. Oh, okay. It's, it's still cold up there, but that's all right. <laughs> so these are some questions I always like to ask my guests. What was your first aquarium setup and what were your first fish? Yeah, the very first one I think doesn't count because when I was having my birthday party to my sixth birthday, my mother, she gave me a tank, a small tank and every guest brought a fish. So it was, was plenty of fish, too many in that tank and I think I stopped this about two or three weeks later when everything yes, was a mess. And really, I found this tank, actually. It was, uh, we say, in liter, okay? It's about 60 liter, a very small tank. And I found it on in the cellar one day when I was 11 years old. And then I started with guppies, which was a real good thing because the guppies started to, yes, to reproduce and so did the aquaria. And when I was 13 years old, all my room was filled up with little tanks with fishies. That's actually good. I never heard the uh, bring a fish to uh, your birthday party 
before. It, so. it wasn't. It wasn't a good idea. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm sure. I'm sure it wasn't. But it was interesting. Your mom was actually thinking about it. So, so how did you first get interested in African cichlids? I know that's one well, of your great, your original loves. Yeah, I'm talking about the 70s. So I'm. Wow, how old was I? It was it was in 76, 77, 78. In that time, they were quite posh. These African cichlids, and uh, actually, I could not afford to buy them when I was a boy. But, um, well, it was quite interesting seeing them because cichlids are great. They have a behavior. They, they are corresponding to each other. So you can, yeah, you can watch them doing things and you understand what they want and what they do. So that was the reason for me that because they were so, I was so familiar with them. I was reading books. I was reading magazines. I was trying to get any information possible. And so my biggest wish was having these. And when I once started with one of them, well, that was it. it. I fell in love with these <laughs> the cichlids. You said you like the Tanganyikans a little more. And yes. It, how come those versus maybe some of the other uh, rip lakes? Well, uh, to be frank, uh, these Mubuna cichlids, these from Lake Malawi, they are too active, in my opinion. For me, it's it's just a matter of, of yeah, what you like and what you don't like. And uh, they are swimming around all the time. And, and these Tanganyikans, they stood back and they paired and they raise the babies and that's what I like actually and these mouth brooders are not so my party <laughs> no problem so now let's move a, a number of years and you then you became interested in catfishes how did that happen and which group specifically did you first get interested in and how did that evolve well yes there was another quite interesting day I was invited to a companion of our aquarium club and he brought me to his basement and he had a poor, I think, 50, 60 tanks or something. It was a dreamland for me, actually. And I saw some Corridoras catfish there and they were spawning in that uh, day. And so I could watch them, observe them, how they did it with these, yeah, the, 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 the males were chasing the females. And all of a sudden, a male got in front of the female and did this, what we call a T position. So he took there and then the eggs came out in, in the little pouch that she'd built out of her anal fins and that was so fantastic for me and said wow what are these and I, I of course I knew what it was but I persuaded that guy to give me some of these and that was it and uh, I started with Corridoras catfish and today I bred 112 species of them so it must be love <laughs> yeah definitely that's a lot and then the the plecos you became interested in the plecos as well yeah, at that time, it was in the early 80s, late 70s, early 80s. There were not too many of these plecos available in the hobby. Well, let's say all together, maybe 20 species of catfish that were available in patch-ups. So it was a few Corridoras catfish, it was a few plecos, and it was a Sturizoma, a royal whiptail, I think is, is the correct English name. And that was it. And all these I liked so much because they are more... Yeah, calm. And so they, they are, <laughs> some people say, boring because they just don't move all day. Well, I, I see it a little bit differently. And so it came that I started with these plecos. And years later, there was a fashion, a real hype on them. But uh, I started doing plecos and breeding them with the bristlenose catfish, as I think everybody did. And um, that was long before all these plecomania started. Now, I, I know you've also traveled a lot in, uh, to collect fish and to lecture, of course. What are some of your favorite places to visit and any of the fish that you really prize the most from these trips? Well, 
hard to say after so many trips, but at least there were some spots I wish I could I could live. <laughs> and there's there was the Rio Xingu in in Brazil. It was, but we can talk about this later. And uh, for example, the Table Mountains in in Venezuela are beautiful places to visit. And nowadays, in the last five years, I'm I'm frequently traveling Sulawesi Island, Celebes, the old name in Indonesia. I think these three spots to mention. Uh, yeah, full of fish. That's beautiful. The, the water is crystal clear. At some some spots, and you can snorkel underwater, observe the fish. And yeah, the Shingu particularly is is a, is a treasure because they you, you find so many beautiful placos in there. And I think that was one of the, the, the most beautiful places I've been to. I just recently started reading Amazonas, which I know just came out in English just a very short while ago. I was really impressed with the articles and, and the pictures are, are amazing. How did you get involved with Amazonas and when did it become uh, available in English exactly? Well, yes, yeah, so we started with Amazonas magazine in 2005. September was the first issue out in Germany. The plan to do this was much older. The, the manager of the publishing house, he contacted me already three years ago. We knew each other from, from fairs and, and so on. And he asked me and I said, well, please let me finish my monograph on the Pleco first. Uh, I did a huge book together with my friend Ingo Seidel. We produced the Catfish Atlas, at least two volumes of more than 2,500 pages, only dealing on Plecos. And when I finished that, I said, okay, let's do it because I have a, a certain idea of how an aquarium magazine for really... Yeah, fanatics should look like it. It should be a bit different to what is on the market, actually. And so we started in 2005, became quite big in Germany. And uh, the first English issue has actually been published in January this year. So it's quite fresh. Now, let's get to uh, the meat of our, our discussion, the Plicos. And you refer to them as the LCATs in the magazine what exactly are the LCATs and can you uh, describe maybe what makes Plicos different from some of the other catfish? Yeah. Well, the so-called suckermouth catfish of the scientifically named uh, family of the Loricaridae is a, a big group of catfish, at least minimum 1,000 species, maybe more. Many, many of them are quite colorful. They are black with yellow spots, white spots and so on. Or they are some orange lines and really beautiful fish and uh, they became quite popular in the end of the 80s when one fish was found in the Rio Xingu that I mentioned before and it was for us for all of us it was a, a real sensation when the, uh, the zebra pleco turned up and the German magazine that's was it they started with a system to give all these upcoming forms and new placos that came in like a wave into the hobby because there was a zebra pleco, and after that, everybody wanted it. It was extremely expensive then. Uh, I think more than one thousand U.S. dollar a piece in the very first days. And um, well, there were others coming up from the Xingu, from other rivers like the Araguaia or the Tapajós. These are big rivers in the central Brazilian shield. It's just clear water, so the fish have colors. And um, so then somebody needed a system to put them all into a system to have, well, yeah, the people talk about the very same fish and 
it was too much to give scientific names. Well, this is the reason for scientific names is that a guy in Florida can talk about the very same fish that a guy in Hamburg actually. And so they needed a system and they said Lori Curry, that is the name of the family, is an L. So we, they took the big L and said, and we, we just number them L, one, two, three, and so on. And now it's 450 or even more of undescribed fish, undescribed members of the catfish family Loricariidae. And with the L's, they, I guess, is it specific for also where it's found or captured as well as the appearance, you know, because of, of the variability? Yes, that's correct. When we gave L numbers to that fish, I, I was involved, of course, and others too. Um, we tried to get the location where they came from, so just to, to have a, a clear idea where they do come from. And so we said, well, this is, for example, a member of the Gannis Ancestros, the bristlenose. And this is coming from the Rio Madeira region. Maybe we have an affluent, we have a name of this Rio, for example, Rio Acre. And so we said, well, this is a Rio Acre and this is L200 whatever. And so later on, the people could say, okay, if a scientist describes a certain species and then we could have checked is an L number involved or not? Because in the recent years, the, the Brazilians and also other ichthyologists, this is the name for the scientists that deal with, with fish, they found out this is a new species, so they gave a new name to it. And then later on, we can refer to the L number system. Uh, there's a very prominent example for that. There was a really nice placo from the Rio Tapajós called the, the, the Tapajós zebra or tiger, which is uh, L134. And it has recently been described now as Picoltia compta. So we don't need to say L134 anymore. We can say this is a Picoltia compta. This is a good scientific name. No need for a code number anymore. So what is their status in the wild and in captivity? And are, are there any that are considered endangered? Yes, there are. Actually, especially the Brazilian species are heavily endangered and this uh, the reason for that is that the brazilian government is planning a huge system it's not only one it's several uh, dams to dam the the big rivers to to get electricity hydroelectricity and actually they are building a huge dam the so-called belo monte dam in the rio xingu area around altamira Altamira is the capital city, or has been the capital city for fish collectors in, in the Shingu system. And this is the place where, for example, the hypencistrus zebra, the zebra placo, comes from. The zebra placo is on a list of endangered species, Brazilian species, since 2004. It's on a red list. You're not allowed to collect it, not even allowed to keep it in an aquarium, to breed it or whatever. And, of course, not to deal it in any way. But you are obviously allowed to dam the whole slope of the river where this species is living, which will actually dry out and just put the water into turbines to win some electricity. Well, where nobody really knows what it is good for, except an aluminium plant, which is being planned in, in about 250 kilometers away from that and. We are facing a huge problem now in the Shingu area because also of the indigenous people living there, which had been put into that region already 80, 60, 70 years ago by the Brazilian government, forced to live together, enemies, former enemies, and now 
they've they found a way to to survive and now they are chased away again and um, all these plans for damming because Placos are inhabitants of very turbid and fast flowing waters and they are sticking to some islands like the rapids in these rivers some particular species are not very widespread they are almost yeah, living only in that particular rapid they call it cachoeira in Brazil and if you dry this out the species inhabiting this cachoeira will die out too well, that definitely uh, sounds like it's uh, important to get many of these into uh, breeding populations or in culture for that purpose as well as for the hobby. Are the Elcats fairly easy to keep or are some of them for more advanced hobbyists? Yes, um, there are some which are quite easy to keep, of course, like uh, the bristlenose catfish, the ancestral species. They are really not a big issue. Others, I would say, especially the biggest species, they, they require higher intention just because they feed on different things. But uh, they are not really hard to keep fish, all of them. They are, if you follow the rules, not really a problem. So in terms of water quality, for example, and, and temperature, can they just fall within sort of normal guidelines for tropical fish? Yeah, you just need to know where these fish come from. This is the main important rule. If you know where they come from, which water body they inhabit, they are alcats that come from the sub-Andean regions, which can be colder, like, uh, well, 20, 22, 23 degrees Celsius. And others, they come from the Amazon Valley, where they live in rivers and rapids, where it is a high temperature of 28 to 32 degrees sometimes. And they can come from the rainforest, small streams, and these are about 25 Celsius. So you have to know this. And um, if you know that, you need to fix the temperature. Uh, but all of these fish are quite adaptable to their circumstances and to their surroundings. Uh, but what they need is high oxygen level, of course, because... Um, a good filter system. They eat a lot. Many, many of these are scraping algae or they are scraping detritus from the rocks where they sit on and they, they are feeding the whole day. So they, uh, of course, producing uh, the whole day. And um, yeah, you need actually to take care if you want to maintain them well. Just change the water, for example, at least weekly, 20, 30, 40% of the tank. If you have big fish, you need a really good filter system. Uh, big fish eat a lot, especially in the very first days when you, when you got them. Take care, have a look. Are they feeding? And You have to know what are they feeding on. Some are strictly veggies, others are carnivores. So just depending on the species, when you have more than 1,000 species, you have a big choice. One more uh, quick question before we take a break. Um, in terms of social structure, are they pretty aggressive if you have, you know, for example, males together or how do you handle that sort of thing? Depending, yeah. Um, most of them are peaceful, really peaceful fish. They don't hurt each other. Uh, the placos, we, we reduce the whole thing to the placos, the sucker mouth ones, the most popular, the black ones or whatever with the beautiful patterns. They are quite peaceful. There are some, especially the bigger ones, which are not. So they require a territory and they fight for it. If you have a Pseudacanticus, a fully adult one of 
30, 40 centimeter in size and you have two males in one tank, <laughs> you can have a battle. Yeah, you will have a battle at least one sooner or later a day. So you have to have a look and inform yourself before you purchase. That's what I can say. Well, I've got a lot more questions, and we're going to start hitting some of the really interesting questions about breeding as well after a short break. So let's take a break, and we'll continue our discussion with Hans-George Evers from Amazonas Magazine after these messages from our sponsors. Put on a perfectly possum pet party. Having an awesome birthday or adoption day celebration for your four-legged friend? Or just want a fun excuse to throw a fun party with your friends from the dog park? Deck out your party with Molly and Bandit Pet Party Accessories, party products designed specifically for pets. There are wearables, including adjustable pet party hats, bow ties, and tutus. The photoprop kits include funny glasses and hats. The party supplies and decorations include coordinating table covers, party banners, cake decorations, and treat bowls, cups, and bags. Everything you need to create great memories and Instagram-worthy photos. They're available in two colorful themes, Tropical and Fireman. It's a dog's life. Celebrate it with Molly and Bandit Pet Party at mollyandbanditpetparty.com slash petlife. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. We're back and continuing our conversation with my guest, Hans George Evers, editor-in-chief of Amazonas Magazine. Well, Hans, it's obvious you know a lot about the uh, Laura Caridi, the, uh, the Alcats. And as I mentioned, going through the Amazonas Magazine, one of the recent editions, you had a number of incredible articles from you and your colleagues on breeding these fish. Can you give our listeners a general overview of what is involved with breeding the Alcats sort of in, in general? And then we'll talk about some more specifics in a bit. Yeah, of course. It's not so easy to, to give a, a rule for all of them just because it's such a big group of fish. But if we are talking about those that are inhabiting the rapids of the bigger rivers like the Rio Xingu, Papajois, Rio Araguaia, the big ones from the central Brazilian shield, then I can say, yes, they need high temperatures. They need caves where they breed in, which have to have the correct size that a male can guard the eggs because they, the, the males take care for the eggs when they breed. And at least the female has to get into, <laughs> otherwise it won't work. And yeah, of course, a high oxygen level and the correct food. So to find out all these matters, we thought it was a good idea to give some information in the Amazonas magazine on it just because the people in the U.S., they love the Plecos very much and they are also already very good, excellent breeders in the United States of, of Plecos. But the big group of aquarists might be interested in how to do it. And so we give some rules or ideas at hand. We don't give a recipe. You can't give a recipe on breeding fish. And uh, my personal opinion is when I buy a fish, when I purchase a fish for myself, I always buy group and I always want to breed them. I always want to know how it works. It's not, <laughs> it doesn't have to do, it's, it's not an ornamental thing for me, but I'm a professional now and I'm not, not a hobbyist. But many, many of these plecos are not too hard to breed. They are quite easy, actually. So before we discuss some of the successes that are described in Amazonas, 
Um, I had to ask about some of my old favorites when I was kind of growing up, or at least early on in my career here. Uh, the blue-eyed plecos, for example. Has anyone tried breeding those, and what's their current status in the wild? Yeah, this is a very good question, Roy. Actually, we are talking at least about two different species. Uh, or they are belonging to the genus Panaki, Panaki zutonurum or Cogliodon. These are the two species we are talking about. They're both from Colombia and Western Venezuela. And um, we uh, actually don't know all too much about this area because it's uh, during the last 20, 30 years. Uh, you might know that in Colombia there is some, some terrorist action going on and these people are, are fighting the, the government. So there's nobody <laughs> uh, daring to get into that area for collecting fish. But we will have, this is not, not a secret, but we are actually preparing for Amazonas Magazine a report on the biotopes of uh, the blue eye pleco and the whole story behind it. So I don't want to talk too much about this in the moment because uh, <laughs> we want to publish this uh, as the very first magazine in the world very soon. Oh, but, that's great. I, did, yeah, yeah. I had no idea. That's good. No, you couldn't know that yeah. because uh, <laughs> it, it's a very fresh information, uh, just two weeks old, that I got the okay from the author that he wants to do it. And uh, so when I was a little boy, it was one of these 20 species available in the hobby. No problem. Blue eyes were everywhere in every pet shop in the world. You could buy them, these gray fish with little blue eyes. And nobody was actually so heavily in interested in that fish as they are today because they are rare now and um, rumors about environmental pollution and terrorist activity and drugs and so on. So it's quite a, quite a story. And yes, there are people in Germany that do have big fish that are actually trying to breed, but the whole genus Panaki is a miracle still. So going on to uh, another of my uh, original favorites, the Royal Pleco, is that sort of in the same kind of boat as the blue-eyed? Yes, it's exactly the same. They are special fish. I collected many species of them in the wild and they inhabit huge rivers. And first thing is they eat a lot. They grow huge, 50 centi or more. And um, they are quite territorial and quite aggressive towards each other when they reach a certain size. All this, you can tell of the genders, so no problem. You can tell what is a male, what is a female. But uh, to bring them in one tank and trying to breed them is another story. And I don't know of anybody who ever successfully bred or got anything else but two or three or fish, four fish sitting together in the same tank. I never heard of any reproduction of these fish so far. Since you mentioned it, um, just for the listeners, can you kind of review real briefly how you sex plecos? Oh, 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 yeah. It's a, <laughs> it is a very good question. Um, and it's quite funny because when I come to a pet shop, for example, and people see me, they always ask me, Hans, please help me sexing my panaki or all the plecos. I want to buy a pair of hypensisters. Can you please sex them? Well, yes. Highly dependent on the Genus, for example, hypancestors are quite easy to tell apart from each other just because if you have from above, you have, if you have fully grown fish, have a look from above and you see the head of the males, are, the heads are broader, stronger and the, the females, they have a quite acute snout 
profile. Not really acute, but if you have them sitting by each other, then you can see, well, the heads of the males are roundish, more roundish than of the females are more slender, more acute. Uh, the pectoral fins, um, the first spines of, of males are very often covered with little odon toads, with little spines, and they are much broader very often than the first pectoral spines of the females. And my most certain thing is if you have a look uh, at the anal region and then you can have a look at the genital papilla. And in males, it is always ellipse or slender and longer and it is quite roundish in females. And this is the most certain part. And of course, if they are being fed well, Females will turn fat just because of the the eggs in their belly. Okay, well that helps a lot. And obviously, I guess if they're younger, you're, it's gonna it'll be a little bit harder. You have to wait till they're more mature. Yes, I always say when people buy fry from me, I say I'm so sorry, I, I can't give you a guarantee that you purchase a pair of them. For example, the very expensive offspring of the zebra pleco, and of course, people don't want to buy twenty because they can't afford it. <laughs> And so they always ask me for give me a pair or something. I say, oh, they are four centimeter. Please uh, have a look yourself. Let's talk. And then we shake hands and say, okay, take them. But I never give a guarantee. <laughs> so since you mentioned the zebra plecos, Hans, can you describe a little bit about how those are bred? I know you've bred them as well as, um, as some of your colleagues. Yes, uh, zebra plecos, of course, are not too difficult to breed. The main important thing in the beginning, in the first years, was to get females because wild imports, mainly males, because they are sitting in their caves and they are being grabbed by the collectors in 10, 15 meters depth. And the females are strolling around, so they are much harder to get. After we could purchase a female also, well, it's just a matter of uh, temperature. It's high temperature. It's a high oxygenic level in the aquarium. So we take strong filters and uh, a lot of bubbles and a lot of oxygen and then oh, well you need a, a cave which is quite suitable for the male guarding the eggs now it's quite easy you just go into a patch shop in a well sorted patch up and buy a, a cave when we started in, in 91 92 93 we didn't have such caves they have been developed uh, from uh, by people like us and um, we started with, uh, with different uh, methods to find a way we measured actually our males and built the caves after the size of the males and and these caves were usable and if you have a good cave you have a good water changing water every week you have a good food for them a lot of food carnivores like you can frozen foods you can even feed tablets or whatever and you have strong fish and then you have everything done you just need to do one thing and this is being patient don't touch them don't disturb them every day don't take your torch every day and shine into their living room if you do this um, well no need to, to talk about this they are feeling disturbed and they won't breed and one day you will see that the females are going for for the caves where the males are in and trying to sneak in and this is the day where you can start to hope 
and then you have to <laughs> wait another another few days. Sometimes in the very first beginning, it takes three, four, five, six days, and she's sitting in front of the cave. He doesn't let her in, and then she sneaks in, and then they are together in that particular cave for another week, and you go mad, and you think, well, it never happens, and all of a sudden, it happens, and then the male is guarding a bunch of bright orange eggs. And about how many eggs would they have at, at one spawn? Yeah, my personal record was, I think, 14. Oh, wow. But I heard about much more. Like, uh, some people told me about more than 20. I must admit that I never saw more than 15, 16 eggs. In. And um, this is not many. And they take a long time to raise. And uh, But it's not so difficult if you follow certain rules to, to raise the babies. But it's, it's not a mass production fish, no. Now, the, you mentioned so many uh, other really beautiful LCATs uh, in, in the Amazonas, and, and some of your uh, colleagues wrote some incredible articles on them. We probably won't be able to hit them all, but can you maybe talk a little bit about one of them to start the uh, L25, the redfin cactus catfish? Maybe describe <laughs> it for our listeners first and then talk a little bit about some of the challenges with breeding that one. Yeah, for, for those listeners that don't know that fish, imagine a, a dark brown, almost black pleco, an adult size of 50 centimeter and full of spines, the whole body covered with spines and the caudal fin and the dorsal fin with shiny red colors, not all of it, the edges. And this is a very strong fish. It's a very beautiful fish. And I, I know that Americans in particular love big fish. And I saw many, many big cactus catfish in, in America in huge tanks, very well set ups. And um, yeah, the guys that try to breed them, it was, it's a bit different than, than buying a fish of five centi and putting it into your living room tank. No, I think trying to breed L25 was something for a real fanatic. And um, this guy had a huge tank of almost three meters in length. And it was a, a very warm, high temperature, of course. It's also like the zebra plague. It's a, a fish from the Rio Xingu, so it's almost identical uh, environment. And you need a bigger cave, <laughs> a much bigger cave, and they are quite aggressive. So it was a game of patience. I think it took him three years or something to get a male and a female in harmony in the very same tank. And then they started and they really feed a lot. So this is a very special thing. Breeding this is a really big success in my opinion. And I don't envy this guy because I don't have such a big tank. And I, I appreciate very much that he did it just just to do know it. And this is what I really like. Well, that, that was a big success, yes. L25 was a good one. One more from that, the Amazonas issue, the L204, another really beautiful fish. Can you maybe describe that for our listeners and, and also talk a little bit about some of the challenges with it? Yeah, this is a funny story, actually, because that guy tried also for four or five years and uh, to get some information about this. It's a, a small panaki. So the genus is Panaculus, which means small panaki. So they feed on wood. If you, you find them in, in the sub-Andean region of Peru, in the Rio Alejandro and other places, where they sit on wood and they feed on wood, that means these fish are able to scrape the wood, not only the algae or the detritus, they also scrape the wood and they feed on wood in a particular. And uh, so they, they are able to, to feed on this. That means they are producing a lot of dirt in the aquarium. 
So they are quite abundant in the hobby because they are being regularly exported from Peru and they are beautiful. So everybody that I know and me too, we try to, to breed them and it is a it is really a game of patience also. That guy tried four years. He did a lot. He did everything, he said. And um, what we found out is to breeding panaculars, you need to change the whole system drastically because they are fish from regions where you have a seasonal change. You have a high water season and a low water season with different temperature and water chemistry in some places. And the Rio Alejandro, the biotope of these fish, is one of these rivers, which are very high and very strong current in the rainy season, when the Andeans are uh, being rained and ev all the rain goes through the channels of these rivers down to the Amazon Valley. So they need a strong current and a complete change of water chemistry. And what we do here to breed panaculus, especially the L204, is you keep them for three, four months in high temperatures and a low current, quite low oxygen level, not too low, and um, a very high temperature. Feed them a lot, as usual, on wood and other things. Then change the water from RO system, for example, and take very soft water, a little bit cooler temperature, take the temperature down two or three degrees Celsius, so from 28 to 25, something like this. And these changes are inducing the fish to, to get eggs in the belly, the females, and also that the, the males go into the caves and the females come and try to breed because for them it's the season change and the water levels are raising, rising and... Um, with these, there are other food sources available for the fry. They, the, the water's going over the edges of the river into the grass. The babies can feed on other things there. This is the reason. So, inducement was, was one of particular thing. And that guy tried this for four years. He did a lot to do this. And then he said, well, they didn't do anything. He completely stopped everything. He just said, I just watch them, feed them, that's it. And then they did it. <laughs> now, actually, can you do you mind maybe do a quick description too for the listeners so they know what the fish looks like? Yeah, it's it's, it's a beautiful medium-sized fish of maximum twelve to fifteen centimeters. It's chocolate brown, and it has when they are babies, they have rings in creamy white and yellow around the body. So we call them ringle socks here in Germany. And uh, later on, these stripes are vanishing a bit. They darken in and they have very long filaments in the caudal fins and in the dorsal fins. It's a very nice fish sitting somewhere on the bark wood. It's a special fish. We have many panaculus species. We know more than 30 or something. But these particular 204 are one of the most beautiful ones, in my opinion. So it's a really good fish, yeah. Well, unfortunately, we're getting close to our uh, time and I have so many more questions and, and I'm, I may have to have you on again definitely to talk about more of these and, and some of the other fish that you've been working with. What do you think are the major challenges for the aquarium industry today? Oh, what a question. <laughs> I think these challenges are quite different in the United States than it is here in Germany or in middle European area. But uh, for us, of course, always is the animal is the main topic and all the things that help to keep and maintain the animal in a very good surrounding so that you can breed them and so on is a good idea. So giving information like we do in Amazonas magazine is a topic for us 
the main purpose to do in the magazine is helping to keep the fish in the real way. And the industry should do the same, supply with good and useful equipment and uh, maybe step away a little bit from the plastic dinosaurs that I always see when I'm in the United States. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. So, you know, I learned so much from that, the magazine and from you, obviously, uh, as well. So how can our listeners subscribe to uh, Amazonas? Oh, this is quite easy. So just go into the internet and take www.amazonasmagazine.com. That's it. You can go in there and there's a way to subscribe and we will see you again. <laughs> well, that's great. Well, unfortunately, we are out of time and I, I want to thank very much our guest, Hans-George Evers and our producer, Mark Winter, for making the show possible. Hans, do you have any final words of wisdom or anything else you want to share with our listeners? Final words of wisdom is a nice word. Well, I, I don't dare to say something like that, but what I think, think is I'm really happy that Amazonas Magazine is available in English now just because we have a lot of messages to tell to the people which are so easy to understand and it's just a big party. Everybody I met everywhere in the world, everywhere where I go for collecting fish or meeting people of the business, they are so enthusiastic about keeping fish and this is what I want to bring to the people. My enthusiasm just to tell them, well, it's really fun doing fish on a metal fish tank and Thanking you, Roy, and, and Mark so much for giving me a chance to tell all these things here. Well, again, thank you very much, Hans. It's been a pleasure, and I, I know I'll have you on again. Please be sure to check out Hans' webpage at the Aquarium Mania site for this episode. I encourage all of you to visit my Aquarium Mania blog on Pet Life Radio. Also, if you have any questions, comments, or ideas for a show, email me at drroy at petliferadio.com. That's D-R-R-O-Y at petliferadio.com. If you're ever in Florida, please be sure to visit the Aquarium Mania exhibit at the Florida Aquarium in Tampa, one of my favorite aquariums. Until next time, please visit your local aquarium stores, keep your tanks clean and your fish healthy, and keep an eye out for those amazing LCATs. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.